Okay, well, why don't you make your way back in and find a seat if you're, uh, if you're out. <laughs> it was a great worship time this morning. If, uh, if you're visiting us and you're new amongst us, then we hope that you are enjoying your time with us. You're encountering the presence of God. And uh, I'm going to be preaching right now. And I'm going to preach from uh, Mark's Gospel. So if you have a Bible, you may want to be turning to Mark's Gospel. And uh, we're up to chapter 10. We've been preaching through the entirety of Mark's gospel really now for a year and a half almost. Um, so we're up to chapter 10. Um, we're almost up to uh, the final week of uh, before the crucifixion, which comes in chapter 11. And Mark, Mark really slows down at that point and, uh, and focuses in on that final week. But we're just coming up to that. We've been racing through the first three years of Jesus' ministry. Um, so, in a moment, we'll read from chapter 10 and verse 17, and the words will appear on the screen. But just before that, just to give you a bit of context, Jesus has been teaching people and uh, performing miracles. Um, and often the pattern has been he'll teach people, he'll teach the crowds who are following him, and then he will in particular, then spend some time with his disciples. Sometimes he'll say things to the crowd or things will happen and the disciples will have questions about it and they'll say, well, what's all that about? And well, what, that seems a difficult teaching. And then he'll explain a little bit more to them and, and really dig in deep and help them to apply um, what is going on. So in the rest of chapter 10, uh, so for example, he's talked about, he's answered the question on divorce and then he's explained in greater depth and the disciples are saying things like well if that's true then it's better not to marry it says that in Matthew's gospel the same passage then there was the incident where um, his disciples were turning the children away and saying no 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 Jesus hasn't got time for you and Jesus uses that and he says well no actually let the children come to me and then he starts to teach them about welcoming uh, people who are insignificant children those least significant in our society, um, and how they should even be models for us, that if we want to come into the kingdom, then we have to be like children, completely empty-handed, completely dependent on him. Most of these things that Jesus is teaching, and if you, if you read the Gospels, and as we go through uh, week by week, most of the things that Jesus is, is saying are really hard to get a hold of. Um, they're countercultural. They were countercultural in Jesus' day. They're countercultural in our day as well. It's kind of an upside-down uh, kingdom for us. Um, so just like the disciples, we need to take time to process as well. Um, it's, uh, it's one thing to hear that what Jesus is saying in a gathering like this, but I would encourage us to go home and process some of what is being taught, some of what Jesus is saying. Maybe in a life group context, that's a great place to do it. If you're part of a life group, Get, get into it and say, well, what's really going on here? How does that apply to me? If you're not part of a life group, join a life group. We, we, we've got a number of life groups who can help you do that. Maybe you can do it one-on-one -on -one with a few friends. That's great as well. But, but we really need to process and wrestle with what Jesus is teaching in some of these passages. And uh, often we've got to make a decision as to whether to 
apply them, embrace them, or whether we're going to walk away and just say, well, do you know what, Jesus? We want to follow you, but we'll follow you on our terms rather than on, on your terms. That's, that's pretty much what's going to happen in the man, in the passage we're going to read in a moment. So, yep, we're coming to this new passage, and uh, it's again a tough message that Jesus brings. So I'm going to read it, and then we'll pray uh, that God will speak to us and apply it to our lives. So, verse 17 uh, the words are on the screen as well if you don't have a Bible. It says this, As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one's good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not defraud. Honor your father and mother. A teacher, he declared, all these I've kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have and give to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said again, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than someone who's rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, well, who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. Then Peter spoke up, We've left everything to follow you. Truly I tell you, Jesus replied, No one who's left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children and fields along with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. That comforted them, didn't it? <laughs> but many who are first will be last, and the last first. All right, Father God, I, I pray that you will help us this morning to, to understand what you're saying in this passage, what you're teaching us this morning, and help us to be able to apply it to our life. And Lord, sometimes where there is resistance, where there's uh, a kickback in our spirits, Lord, I pray you'll give us soft hearts. You'll help us to be able to understand truly what it is that you have for us, your grace, your love for us, and we will be able to follow you and be those who receive so much more in this age and in the age to come. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, let's go through this. We're going to pretty much go through it verse by verse. You might just want to, um, I, forgot, I forgot to do my PowerPoint. This. Well, I, I did my PowerPoint, I just didn't upload it. Um, <laughs> so the guys at the back put the words up. So why don't you just put the first bit up, and then as we go through, you'll be able to follow where I'm up to in the passage. just helps people to follow. That would be great. All right, so as Jesus is heading out on, uh, on his way, a man runs up to him, and uh, we find out later on in the passage that this man was very rich. Um, and actually, there's an equivalent passage in Matthew's gospel. And Matthew tells us that he's a young man. And there's an equivalent passage in Luke's gospel. And Luke tells us he is a ruler. And so often we call this man the rich young ruler. 
Um, and it comes from all three Gospels. And this young man, this young ruler, looks pretty impressive at first. It looks as though he's a prime candidate to be one of Jesus' disciples because he's got so much going for him, really, on the surface. He's got um, influence and connections with people as a ruler, obviously, other people who are following him. He could easily gather other people to follow Jesus, to get behind the cause that Jesus is, he, that he may see he's is, is got. He's got youth on his side, uh, which is something that some of us uh, increasingly cannot be said of us. He has got um, money. Um, he could be very helpful in terms of financing Jesus's ministry. And he seems to be pretty zealous for God as well. He's running up to Jesus. Not many people ran in those days, especially not many people of influence who had stature in society. But, but this man is running to Jesus and he falls and kneels at Jesus's feet. And I'm sure as the disciples were watching that they were pretty excited to see this man come up. They were no way they were going to be turning him away like they turned the children away just uh, a few moments before. Um, they were probably thinking, oh, you know, this could, be, this could be the breakthrough moment that we wanted. We've got this rich young ruler who's coming and wants to follow Jesus, wants to know about Jesus. Um, I'm sure we might be the same uh, if we had some big sports star who suddenly started coming to our church, wanted to know about following Jesus, uh, some TV personality. It can look impressive. It can look exciting. But Jesus was going to look beneath all of that. He was going to look beneath the fact that he was a young guy, that he was rich, that he was a ruler. And he was going to delve beneath the surface and he was going to look at the man's heart. And that's what God does. First Samuel chapter 16 and verse 7 says, The Lord does not look at the things that people look at. People look at the outside appearance. But the Lord looks at the heart. And that was when David was being uh, chosen ultimately to be uh, king. And he was not the obvious candidate. Um, but God spoke to Samuel and said, the Lord doesn't look at the things people look at. People look at the outside appearance, how impressive and strong and tough and tall and whatever it might be. Um, God looks at the heart. We can too easily be dazzled by someone's outward appearance, their good looks, their power, their wealth, their talents. Maybe we get a successful businessman who starts coming to our church and we think, oh, let's really draw him in. Let's give him, he's, he's really good and, and got some real skills in, in business and leadership. Let's give him some leadership responsibilities in the church. Perhaps a talented musician joins us. So we quickly draw her into the worship team and say, oh, you can, you can help us to worship. But if we're too quick to do that, we can be tempted to just look at the surface, to just look at the outward appearance and not give regard to the heart. It may well be that in those situations, the people's hearts are good. But we need to be careful and take time to see that. Um, Jesus saw it straight away in this man. Sometimes we need to take time to do that and to give regard to that um, and not be dazzled by um, those gifts, talents, and outward appearances. Jesus never does it. Jesus always goes straight to the heart. But he doesn't just look critically at people's hearts. He doesn't look 
dismissively at people's hearts. As we'll see later on in this passage, he looks with love. He wants to bring about change. Anyway, let's get back to the passage. So this man, he falls on his knees and he asks this question. He says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And in just that one question, Jesus takes quite a while to unpack all that he's saying. Before he even gets to the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He, he picks up on the words that the man has used. And maybe he's picking up again on the attitude that's behind it. We don't, we don't really know what the attitude behind it was. Maybe, maybe the man was being flattering to Jesus. Maybe he was, uh, he, you know, he was just like, oh, you know, I'm, I'm really going to um, flatter you. And, and I don't know what word expressions you'd have here. Suck up to you, would you say that? That's what I would say. Okay. Um, <laughs> I could have come up with a whole load of English expressions. I thought most of them won't, uh, most of them probably won't translate. Whatever it is that's going on in this man, Jesus doesn't just let it pass. And he says, hang on, why do you call me good? Why, why are you calling me good teacher? No one's good except for God alone. Now, of course, Jesus was God. He was God. This, this man had got it right in one sense. But Jesus is probably pointing out this, this man didn't know that. At that point, it hadn't been revealed to him that Jesus was God. Um, the man probably would have addressed other rabbis or religious leaders in very much the same way because what his idea of good would have been would have been tied in with what he saw people present, how people lived their lives, how they were outwardly, what was going on on the surface. Again, it's this surface-level thing. And to be honest, that's the way most of us distinguish between who a good person is and who's not a good person, isn't it? I mean, we, we think about whether they're living a respectable life. Do they help people where they can? Are they honest? Are they, are they polite? Or are they not so good? Do they, do they get drunk a lot? Do they take drugs? Do they lie? Do they steal from people? Are they untrustworthy? God doesn't go by those categories. He doesn't have a sliding scale between good and evil or good and bad, good deeds, bad deeds, where we can say, oh yeah, well, actually we will plot our position on that scale. Actually, we're a bit better than that person because really they don't treat their husband or wife so well, um, but we're, we're not quite as good as that person. You know, the religious leaders, they've got it all sorted out. Yeah, they're, okay, they're up there, but we're probably here. We're not too bad. We're doing okay. Jesus doesn't work on that scale. Jesus says, the truth is, no one is good except for God himself. And the Bible tells that in a number of places. Romans chapter 3 and verse 12 says, There is no one who does good, not even one. It's basically saying the same thing that Jesus says. There's no one who does good, not even one. And if we don't have that biblical understanding, if we don't agree with what the Bible is teaching, that means that we'll think we probably are good. We're probably okay. We probably are better than other people that we choose to compare ourselves with. And if we think we're good, if we think we're good enough, we won't need the gospel. Why do we need Jesus? Why do we need God? Why do we need the good news? In fact, it's not really that good news if we're okay to start off with. 
But you know, deep down inside, this man knows that there's something else. He knows that, that there's just something nagging, niggling away at him. And that's why he comes to Jesus to ask him the question. Even if we try and convince everyone else that we're a good person, often we still have that nagging feeling, that nagging doubt deep down inside that we're not. That's, that's actually God's voice sometimes speaking to us and telling us the truth, and we try and suppress it. Because we know that our hearts are not good. You see, when we look at people on the surface, we only see that. It takes a while to start to discern what's going on in people's hearts. Even then, we're not so sure because it's a discernment thing. We can't see it. It's hidden. God sees our hearts. We see some of our hearts. Actually, our hearts can even deceive ourselves. We can think we're better than we are. But we know more than most people. We know the things that we are wanting to cover up. We, we choose how we present our lives, don't we? We choose whether we, how we look, how we dress. We think about it. We think about what we say when we're in person with someone. Uh, online, we can filter things and plan things even more carefully, even more um, kind of, um, yeah, just, just deliberately. Um, and so we can present this image to others of what our life is like. And if we just go on that, we think, oh, they've got it all sorted out. They've got a great life. What a fantastic family they've got, happy and smiling. You know, they don't see all the stuff that goes on just before. Like, well, you smile for this photo that I've got to put on, <laughs> put on Instagram. Um, <laughs> let's Photoshop some other kid's face on. Okay, that's not... <laughs> we, <laughs> we don't see what's going on. I mean, if I had a flash drive right now and I could download all of your thoughts, all of your motivations, all of the desires that you have, the secrets, everything that you're not going to put on there. And, and, I, and I said, okay, it's all here now. I've got one for each one of you. Now, who would, who would be happy me putting that up on the screen? Who would be happy with me, you know, presenting that to the world? No one's volunteering. I'm not volunteering, for sure. None of us want that reveal to everyone. None of us want, and th that's just what we know about ourselves. There's depths that we're not even aware of ourselves, but none of us are happy. So we always have that nagging feeling. If we're, if we're trying to be good enough, we always have that nagging feeling that we're not good enough. So the man comes to Jesus seeking some sort of reassurance, but he still seeks that reassurance on the basis of what he does. He asks the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He's looking for some comfort from Jesus. He's looking for that affirmation that he's done enough, really, or if he's not done enough, is there something else that he needs to do? And to be honest, it starts off quite well for him, or it seems it does, even though Jesus has just said no one's good. No one's good enough apart from God. He's just told him that. But, but Jesus then starts to ask him about the commandments. Oh, you know the commandments. And he starts to list some of the ones that, to be honest, would have fit quite nicely into the man's definition of what is good. They're similar to the ones I've just listed about how we view people. He says, oh, well, what about these commandments? Don't murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't lie. Don't defraud people. 
honor your father and mother. And as the man's listening to these, he's kind of checking them off. And he said, oh, okay, yeah, I've not done that, not done that, not done that. I mean, we might be the same. We might, we might be thinking, oh, yeah, I can, I can check all those off. I'm not sure about this one, but I can check, I can check these off. That's okay. And the, and the man says, I've kept all of these. I've kept all of these since I was young. It's like, oh, I'm good. I've, I've, I've passed. As we shall see, though, it isn't enough. What's Jesus' response? Let's look at Jesus' response. He, he, he sees the man's heart, but he doesn't, he doesn't like sneer at the man. He doesn't mock him. He doesn't doubt his sincerity in all this. He doesn't say, you're a liar. You're a liar. You've not done those things. He looks at him and he loves him. It says he looked at him and he loves him. Jesus has such love and compassion for people. He has such love and compassion for us. There's, there's times in the Gospels where we read Jesus looks out over Jerusalem and he, he weeps with love and compassion on this, over the city. At other times in the Gospels, it says Jesus is deeply moved. One occasion was when Lazarus was was in the tomb. And he even knows he's going to raise him from, from the dead. He knows what's coming. But he's deeply moved. Jesus is someone who felt deeply. He loved deeply. He was moved deeply. He still is. It's the, the love of God which is being reflected. And that's how God would look at us. He would look at us with love. He would look at us and he would see all the things that are going on in our hearts, all the things where we think we're okay and we think we've got it sorted and we're good enough. And he doesn't just go, oh, what do you know? He looks on us with love. He looks on us with compassion. That's the love of God that took Jesus to the cross for us. Jesus loved the man so much, he didn't just leave him under the illusion that he was good enough that he was a good man. He loved him so much that he didn't fear saying the hard things to him. Sometimes we, we, we shy away from just saying those hard things because we know it might just get a reaction. It might not get the response. Let's just not say it. No, Jesus saw the man's heart and he loved him enough to say the things that he didn't want to hear. Jesus wants to look beneath the surface of our lives, the well-presented images that we have to show each other. He wants to go beneath the surface, look at what's going on, to see past our nicely manicured lawns that we might have. Our lawn, actually, speaking of lawns, our lawn at the moment, like many others in Fredericton, isn't looking too good. Um, it's, uh, it's all getting dug up by crows and skunks and raccoons. And uh, they're all going, I'm like, what's going on here? It's all <laughs> coming out, it's getting turfed up, it's looking dead. And, uh, and like people saying, oh, there's these grubs going on around. I'm like, what do you mean, these grubs? And there's these, like, evil grubs. Um, <laughs> I could have put a picture up, but I thought, no, I better not. <laughs> and they're, they're eating away, they're destroying the roots of the lawns, of the grass, and, uh, and so the raccoon, I mean, the raccoons and the skunks are, do are, good, are doing a good job and they're eating the grubs. But, uh, but it's all getting destroyed. So it looks a mess. And, uh, 
And I get so tempted to go out, I just think, oh, maybe I'll, maybe I'll just call someone up and just lay some turf over the top of it. Just make it look really nice, you know, just, just cover it up, all the surface stuff. It won't do any good because it doesn't deal with the underlying issue because these grubs are still there. It'll still all get, all get done. And uh, so whatever we do to cover things up, our good deeds, our money, our job, our, our status, our clothes, humor, our image, whatever it might be, it doesn't deal with the underlying rottenness in our hearts, which is eating away at us under the surface. Underneath the surface, there's things going on which are just eating away, and it's rotten. And so Jesus is wanting to deal with that. Now, it may look like it's a surprising response. This is Jesus' response. Jesus says, go sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. All right. That looks like a, a strange thing to say if Jesus is looking at the heart. Because it looks as though, on face value, that Jesus is just giving this man something else to do. Another hoop to jump through. Okay, yeah, you've, not, you've honored your mother and father, you've not stolen, you've, you've not committed adultery, you've not killed anyone, you've not lied, but here's one more thing that you can do to add to that. You've got to give to the poor and, uh, and, and sell everything that you have. Other religious leaders might have said similar things. They may have, they may have said, oh, okay, uh, you need to fast. You need to fast some more. Really show your devotion to God. Maybe you should go on a special pilgrimage. Some religions do that. They've gone on a special journey. That just shows your real devotion to God. It shows that you're really serious about God. Maybe you have to pray more often. Maybe you only pray once a day. Actually, you should pray twice a day, three times a day whatever it might be, people give us things to do to work our way to, to holiness, to, to acceptance by God. And, and often people lap it up because, because they want to know what they have to do. They want to do more. I've got to do more. Maybe if I do more, I'll find some peace. I'll find some eternal security that I'm looking for. I'll, I'll know that I'm good enough. And it never comes. It never comes. I used to I used to work with someone who was a Jehovah's Witness, and he, he told me that he had to go from door to door, and you had to try and, and get, a, get a certain number of people whose doors you knocked on and who you had conversations with and who you converted to be Jehovah's Witnesses, and there was a certain magical number that you had to get to to be part of the 144,000 who were going to go into paradise. And I said to him, well, ha- what, what's the number? And he said, none of us know what the number is. We've just got to keep going and keep trying and keep working and, and hopefully we'll get there. But he just never got, I mean, he, he was tortured by it. He's a nice guy. He was deceived because he just thought he had to do more and more and more. Is that what Jesus is doing here? Is he just giving this man something else to do? He's not. Jesus is doing something very different. And, and, and this is what I'd hope we can see to this morning. Jesus was looking at the man's heart, and he was discerning what was going on there. And he was seeing what the man's idol was. He was seeing what was going on, what was replacing God in this man's affections. 
because he talked about all these other commandments, but remember the first commandments that are given in the Ten Commandments? You shall have no other God but me. You shall not worship false idols. Those are the commandments that the man wasn't keeping, and, the, and, and, and they're more a heart issue. They're more our heart issue towards God. And that's what Jesus is getting at. What is it that's this man's idols? What was providing him eternal security? What had won his heart? For this man, it was his wealth. It was his possessions. It was his money. So he says, go, sell everything you have. Give to the poor. He doesn't just say, just do that. He says, and you'll have treasure in heaven. You're going to get treasure. You have to let go of the treasure that you've got and you'll get even more treasure. You'll have treasure in heaven. And it makes sense, doesn't it? This man has been given an offer by Jesus. He's been given a wonderful offer. He said, you can exchange your earthly treasures. These earthly treasures, which are only going to decay, they're only going to rust, and, and they'll be worth nothing when you die. You can't take it with you. You can switch those out. You can exchange them for a treasure which is going to last for eternity. A far greater treasure. You'll even get treasures here on earth as well. Jesus goes on to say to his disciples, and you'll have riches in heaven, which will go on forever and never wear out. It's the same deal that we see in the parable that Jesus tells of the man, remember, who finds treasure in a field. He goes and he, he digs in a field and he says, oh, I found this treasure. He says, wow, this is more amazing than any treasure I've got. What does he do? He goes back, he sells everything that he has so he can go and he buys the field because he's found a greater treasure. He's found a greater treasure. That's what Jesus is getting at here. He's saying you can sell everything that you've got. You can get rid of all of these things and you follow me and you will find a greater treasure. This treasure will be greater than you could ever have had before. All you have to do is let go of, your, uh, of what you're holding on to. But money and wealth and status were this man's gods. And he couldn't bring himself to do it. His money was what brought him security and comfort. He couldn't bear to sell it. He couldn't bear to be without it and simply follow Jesus, even if there was a promise of a hundred times more. He wanted both. He wanted both. He wanted to keep what he had and follow Jesus and get eternal life. And Jesus said, that's not the deal. Is that how we live? There's the hard question. There's the hard question to process this week. Is that what we want? Do we want both? Do we want to keep what we've got on this earth and hold on to it so tightly, whatever it might be, and say, and Jesus, I want this as well. Jesus, this man's not heard what Jesus has just taught. Have we heard what Jesus has just taught in the passage before? Anyone who won't receive the kingdom like a little child will not enter it. We have to come to Jesus like a little child. We have to come with nothing in our hands. They don't come with possessions and wealth and gifts and abilities and all of that. They come with nothing. They're totally dependent. We have to come totally dependent on God with nothing in our hands. But this man was coming with full hands. 
He's saying, this is what I've got. I've got youth and I've got rulership and uh, leadership and I've got, um, I've got money and wealth and I can bring this to your cause and I can bring this and I can do this for you and I live a good life and Jesus, will you accept me? These are all the things I've got. And Jesus says, put it all down. Put it all down. Then you can come to me. Surely I'm good enough to be one of your disciples. No. You lack one thing. Leave it all. Come follow me. Money was this guy's security. Money was his rock, his fortress. He didn't need to come to Jesus for that. Jesus wants us to come with nothing, to lay it all down. There's an old hymn called Rock of Ages. One of the verses says this, Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked, come to thee for dress. Helpless, look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. That's how Jesus wants us to come. With nothing in our hands, naked, helpless, foul, in need of washing. It was too much for this man. He couldn't do it. He walked away. He walked away sad or, or grieved is another way that that word could be translated. It's actually the same word that described Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, grieved. Why was Jesus grieving in the Garden of Gethsemane? He was grieving because he was going to lose the core of his identity. He was going to lose the joy of his life. He was going to lose his spiritual center. He was going to lose his relationship with his father. He was going to be separated and cut off from it, albeit only for a few short days. But he was going to lose it. And this man was grieving because Jesus was asking him to lose the core of his identity. And the core of his identity was his wealth and his money and his power. So what about us? What might be our idols? If Jesus could come and look at our heart and say, one more thing you lack, what might be our idols? What might be the things that are getting in our way of a relationship with God? And there could be many things. I mean, at that point, you might be thinking, oh, that's good. Might be many things. So Jesus isn't asking me to give away all of my money. It's just because that was this man's idol. If, if that's what you're thinking, it probably means money's your idol too. <laughs> so Jesus might be saying the same. Your idols are going to be the things that you feel the strongest about when challenged on them. People tend to be very defensive about their idols. You don't, you don't know what your idols are often until you, until you get to the point of, of considering the prospect of losing them. Once it looks like those things are going to be taken away, once it looks like we're going to be asked to, to lay them down, that's when you suddenly know what your idols are. Oh, I, I don't think I should be able to do that. You know, there's those, there's those times that we get sometimes defensive when challenged. Sometimes people, sometimes people can be um, fairly legalistic in Christian life, and they can say, oh, Christians shouldn't do this, and Christians shouldn't do that. And it may well be that that's not even true, but but what we need to take note of is what's going on in our heart when they say that. How do we react anyway? You know, when people say, oh, I'm not sure Christians should uh, 
should, should drink alcohol, or I'm not sure Christians should wear these clothes, or I don't think Christians should go on nice vacations and spend money on that. I don't think Christians should uh, take part in certain activities. Are those things that we find ourselves getting riled up about? And say, oh, no, I don't want to let go of those. Do we get super defensive, or are we holding things lightly? Are we holding everything lightly? Actually, we may say money's not our idol. To be honest, the easiest way of finding out what our idols are is looking where our money goes. What do we spend our money on? Because Matthew 6, 21 says, where your treasure is, there your heart is also. So he's giving us a good way to find out what our idols are. What's your, where's your heart? Well, follow the money. Follow the treasure and you'll see where your heart is. If you spend most of your money on your car, that's going to be where your heart is. That's, where you're, that's likely to be your idol. Whatever it might be, where your treasure is, there your heart is also. So the best way to deal with your idols is actually to give generously to God or to give generously to other people because we're putting it to death. If we want to love God more, give to him. If we want to love others more, be generous towards them. It helps to kill our idols. That's why Jesus speaks so much about money in the Gospels. And it's not that Jesus is teaching that the less we have, the closer we are to God. We need to be clear on that. Jesus isn't saying, give all your money up and you will be closer to God. That's not, that's not biblical teaching. That's uh, called asceticism. It comes from Plato, if you want to know. Um, Plato said physical things are bad, spiritual things are good, and, uh, and we, can, we, we can easily, easily have that creep into our thinking. And that's not biblical teaching. The point that Jesus is making is whatever is between us and following Jesus, whatever is between us and loving Jesus is the thing we have to deal with and get rid of. It could be any number of things. It could be always wanting to be in a relationship, always seeking after other relationships. It could be uh, our work. It could be our music. It could be video games. It could be sports. Our idol could even be our spouse or our kids. I'm not saying get rid of them. Um, <laughs> but, <laughs> but we have to put them in the right place in our affections. God should always come before them. Don't have children as your idols. Don't make your whole life revolve around your children or, or around your spouse. Our idols could even be something that we don't yet have. We can be poor and still have money as an idol. We can be lacking money, but that could still be our main, our main desire and motivation. We, we might be without a husband or a wife, but that can become our idol. That can become the whole thing that consumes our life. We can be childless and and that could become our idol too. That's not to say that when you're coping with those things, when you're struggling with, with um, not having a husband or a wife, or you're struggling with not having children, that's not to say those things are not incredibly painful things to go through. They are devastatingly painful. We've experienced uh, that, that with childlessness, um, myself and, and Debbie. But we have to take care that those godly desires, and they are, those are godly desires, we have to take care that those things don't become our idol. Because if, if they become that, we're just going to get angry with God when he doesn't give them us. We're just going to say, God, we deserve these things. This is what it's about. 
No, it's not. That's not what it's primarily about. And if we get angry with God about it, we end up walking away from him like this man did. But of all things, money is the most likely to be our idol because it is the gateway into other things. If we have money, we can buy friends, we can buy pleasure, we can buy success, we can get our image looking better, so many other things. Money strongly promises security in a way that other things don't. It's an incredibly strong idol in our society and in Jesus' society, in all societies. We have to break its power. So, how do we do that? How do we fully break the power of this idol of, of whatever it is, of money, wealth, Jesus says, we can't. He says it's impossible. Oh, great. <laughs> Helpful. He says to this man, as, this, as the man walks away, he says to his disciples, he says, children, actually, let's just stop there. This was the only time in the Gospels Jesus calls his disciples children. And it's not a coincidence that he's just taught them that they have to, to enter the kingdom of heaven, they have to be like a child. It's the same thing. He's saying, you've got to come empty-handed. So he's saying, children, how hard is it to enter the kingdom of God? It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than someone who's rich to enter the kingdom of God. So that's pretty clear. It's impossible. Easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle. Now, you'll probably have heard some people try and explain this away, this saying, even people who don't follow Jesus and go to church have explanations for Jesus saying this saying. They've all, they've all heard these other things. You might have heard uh, how, oh yeah, well there was this rope, it was an extra thick rope, it was called the camel rope. And it, it, not that any rope can go through the eye of a needle, but uh, it doesn't even actually make it easier. But yeah, that's what Jesus was talking about. Or this is the one that a lot of people say, oh yeah, there was this gate in Jerusalem, it was called the camel gate, and it was like really low. And uh, camels couldn't get through it with all their load unless they took the load off and they got down on their knees and they, and they could just squeeze through the gate. So what Jesus is really saying is we have to come really humbly before him and be like this camel. No, it's absolute garbage. There's never, there was never any, it is, there was never any evidence there was a gate called a camel gate. No, it's just something that people made up. And uh, <laughs> it's not there. Yeah. Mark Twain said, it ain't the parts of the Bible I can't understand. It ain't the parts of the Bible that I can't understand that bothers me. It's the parts I do understand. <laughs> and so we, we do far better to say, look, we're bothered by Jesus' teaching here. It's not that we need to find another way of understanding it. Jesus was saying it pretty clearly. We don't need to try and find loopholes to try and explain away what Jesus was clearly saying. He was using a pretty vivid picture. Camel through the eye of a needle, it's not going to happen. It's like him saying, there's a snowball's chance in hell for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. That's pretty much what he was saying. And the disciples are like amazed. Well, who can be saved then? And, and Jesus says, yeah, it's impossible. With man, it's impossible. We can't deal with our idols ourselves. We can't put sin to death. We can't deal with our own hearts. We can't save ourselves. We can't do more to enter the kingdom of heaven. It's not about keeping more commandments. It's not even about giving more money to the church or to other people. It's just impossible for us. We need a gracious, miraculous intervention of God. And Jesus goes on and says, but with God, all things are possible. Not with God, he says, all things 
are possible with God. Jesus made a way to the Father. Jesus made a way. He did it by doing what this rich young ruler couldn't do. Now remember, Jesus loved this man. He identified with him. He was very similar to him. Jesus was a rich young ruler. He himself had known great riches. He was ruling with the Father in heaven. He'd been with the Father and the Spirit before the creation of the world. He was the Son of God. But he had given everything up. He had given everything up for our sakes. As Brent was reading the other week in 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9, Paul says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you through his poverty might become rich. How can we attain this? How can we do what Jesus is asking, which is impossible for us to do and he's owning it? We come to the one who can help us. With God, all things are possible. Jesus isn't asking this man to just give up something that he hasn't already done. Even though he knows he can't do it. He's saying, I'm the ultimate rich young ruler who has given up the ultimate wealth to get you. It's only by embracing Jesus and what he's done for us that we can inherit eternal life. Jesus made himself nothing. He took on the very nature of a servant. He humbled himself even to death. But he was raised up and now he's exalted to the highest place. And we can receive the forgiveness and the restoration and the eternal life and security that he's won for us on the cross. How do we receive it? by coming to him empty-handed. Jesus says, put it all down. Put it all down. I've done it for you. I've already done it. Put it all down. Embrace what I've done. Embrace the greater riches. Following Jesus doesn't depend on our ability, but the one who makes all things possible when divine power comes into our life through faith. And it's the same requirement for everyone. Come empty-handed. Jesus is just saying it's just harder for people with a lot of possessions. He's saying it's a lot harder because it's far easier if we know we're weak and naked and frail and poor to come to Jesus. If we think we've got riches, it's much harder to lay them down. Peter says, we've left everything for you. And Jesus says, that's true. And he encourages them that their sacrifice isn't for nothing. No one who's left home or brothers or sisters, mother, father, fields. Any of those things can be our idols. No one who's left all of those things will fail to receive a hundred times more in this present age. And it's the same things, homes and brothers and sisters, mothers, children, fields. He points out there'll be persecutions as well. You'll get persecutions as we identify with Jesus, but you'll receive eternal life and all these treasures in the age to come. Are we prepared to give up all of these things for the sake of the treasure that is Jesus? Are we prepared to give up even our own life when persecution comes to obey Jesus' call? Because we know there'll be incredible riches that we find in God now and treasures forever in heaven. If we willingly give these things up, we'll receive so much more. Does it move you to consider what Jesus gave away and did for us? Are we moved when we hear about Jesus' death? If we are, we're on the way to having that power of money or power of other idols broken in our life. It's only when we see 
the treasure that is in Jesus, the beauty. When we see just how magnificent it is, how much more it is glorious than anything else, how much greater it shines, that we can say, why are we even bothered with that? Why would we even want to go there? We've got something so much greater that's already been won for us. And we'll have the grace of God moving in our lives. Our attitudes will change. Our hearts will change. We won't be thinking when it comes to money, once the power of, its, uh, of it has been broken, we won't be thinking, well, how much do I have to give away? What do I need to do to do enough? We'll just be thinking, oh, how much can I give away? Because I've got so much more to receive from God. God doesn't ask that we just revere and honor Jesus he doesn't just say, take the parts of my teaching which suit you. He's saying, I want you to follow me radically. I want you to trust me completely. This man, he couldn't do it. He wanted to serve God on his own terms. He obeyed the commandments which suited him, but he didn't want to give his whole life over to God. But Jesus has made a way for us to receive far, far more. And to, to receive it, we have to come as little children. We have to come empty-handed. We have to come completely dependent on him. So why don't we pray? Father God, when we, when we hear this teaching, when we read your word and understand what it is saying, Lord, we confess that we find it so difficult sometimes. We don't know we don't know what it is that we can do. We feel helpless. Lord God, I pray, Lord, give us fresh perspectives on this. Give us fresh perspectives on who you are, on what you have done for us, of how you are the greatest treasure, of how you gave up everything so that we could come to you. And as we come to you, we can gladly give up all of these things, Lord. And even when you say, you'll receive so much more, you bless us, you give us things back again in the future. Lord, we're holding them with a new lightness. We're coming to you and we're saying, we can lay it all down. We can lay it all down because we know you'll just keep giving. You'll keep pouring out. We will never exhaust the riches that you have for us, both now and in eternity. Lord, speak that to our hearts. Convict us of it. Help us to break the power of these idols, whatever they may be in our lives, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.